text for the sermon this afternoon is from that passage that we read together from 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. We'll read that verse once again. 1 Timothy, uh, 1 Peter, rather, chapter 2, verse 5. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Thus far, the sermon text. May God bless that reading as well as the proclamation of his word based upon this part of scripture. brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, unless you're a geologist or perhaps there are a few landscapers among us, I don't know, chances are pretty good that you haven't done a whole lot of thinking about rocks and stones over the course of your life. We live in a country that obviously has an abundance of timber, so stonework is generally not something we have to have a lot to do with unless it's purely decorative. But among the original readers of Peter's first letter, there were likely more than a few stonemasons, builders, people who worked in quarries, and there were certainly, most if not all of them, lived in buildings made of stone. So for someone like Peter to use the images of, image of rocks and stones to describe the Christian life and the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus himself is quite understandable. And it's a word picture that we find frequently in Scripture, especially in the Psalms. One obvious example is Psalm 18. In 18 verse 2, it says, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Then verse 31, For who is God but the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? And then verse 46, the Lord lives and blessed be my rock and exalted be the God of my salvation. Rocks and stones also play a large symbolic role in the stories of the Old Testament as well. When you read some of those stories and you come across a description of a rock, when we're told that a certain event happened on or near a rock, you can know that that image is being used for a reason. And we can see that the Apostle Paul connected the imagery of the rock in the Old Testament with Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul writes that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. For Peter, the imagery of rocks was particularly relevant because his name was Rock. He had started out as Simon, but the Lord Jesus had given him a new name. Matthew 16, after Simon made that great confession, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, 
for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, people have mistakenly thought that Peter himself would be the rock that Jesus would build his church on. But the rock is actually his confession about the Messiah, about the Lord Jesus, the Son of the living God. The Lord Jesus is the rock upon whom the church is built. He's the rock. He's the spiritual rock who traveled with Israel through the wilderness. He's the Son of God. And Peter in our scripture reading, in our text, puts together three references from the Old Testament to build up his description of the Lord Jesus as the cornerstone of his people. And he starts by citing Isaiah chapter 28, verse 16, which says, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who was laid as a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. Then he quotes Psalm 118, verse 22. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And then finally he adds Isaiah chapter 8, verses 14 and 15, where it says, And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling in both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. And it's not like Peter was coming up with some kind of new concept here. He had heard it directly from the lips of the Lord Jesus himself. Words that are found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. When Jesus was speaking with the chief priests, with the scribes, the elders, these men who were seeking to destroy him, and they were testing him with questions. But he looked directly at them and said, What then is this that is written, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And then he added this, Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. And this became a part, a very important part, of Peter's preaching. You can see it, for example, in Acts chapter 4. And there Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, speaks of Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, members of the high priestly family. And he says this, This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So if we can mix our metaphors, as Scripture often does itself, when it comes to this image of the stone. The stone of Jesus Christ is double-edged. There are two possible outcomes for an encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ, the living stone. You can either stumble over that stone and be broken, as Jesus said, and that's the negative result of refusing to accept the good news of Jesus Christ and stumbling over the message. Or... Conversely, you can have that stone fall on you 
and you can be crushed. And that sounds negative, but it's actually positive. Because that's the positive result of submitting to the living stone, is having your old nature crushed and your new nature brought to life in union with Christ. And the builders of Israel, these men who were supposed to be building God's kingdom, they stumbled over Jesus Christ and they stumbled over his mission. They stumbled over the idea of the crucified Savior, of the suffering servant, of a humble king who would serve others and who would give his life for them. They refused to allow themselves to be crushed by the living stone. So what would happen is that they would be broken to pieces as a result. The stone that they should have been building upon became a stumbling block to them. So, brothers and sisters, for a people who, were refu- who refused to submit, for people who refused to have their self-willed ways crushed by him, he is a stone of offense and he is a stumbling block. There is no neutrality. There is no middle ground. There's no saying that he was a great teacher or he was a great prophet or he was a very wise man. There's no saying that while rejecting him as Lord and Savior as if some kind of neutrality is possible when it comes to Jesus. But for the church, for the people of God, he is the cornerstone. The cornerstone is the most important part of the building because it ensures that the walls that will be built are straight and true. If that cornerstone is laid wrongly, If it's the wrong shape, then the walls won't run straight. They won't come together properly. They'll lean in or out, or the line will be completely off, and it will make for a lousy and fragile building. But Jesus is the perfect cornerstone of his building of the church. And as the true and perfect cornerstone, he forms the perfect foundation of a building that will last a building that will hold together, a building that is going to withstand the ravages of nature and the elements, a building that will last. No other cornerstone will do. Our faith and our community of faith must be built on Him. It must be built on His life. It must be built on His work, on His ministry. And that must be our cornerstone. When we are built on that perfect cornerstone, as Peter says in verse 5, we become like living stones being built up as a spiritual house. Now remember what Peter had said in the opening of his letter that we heard this morning. How he addressed his letter to encourage his readers. We are the elect exiles of the dispersion. Now he's continuing to encourage us. He says, live as exiles. Remember your calling to be the dispersion scattered among the nations to bring God's will and God's word to bear in the world in which we have been scattered. Peter's calling is that we always remember who we are, to remember what God has made of us. Once we were not a people, but now we are God's people. Once we were fragmented, we were individuals, each working 
for our own good and for our own purposes. But we have been set apart, we've been called and equipped to form a nation, to form a kingdom, a royal priesthood ruling under God, interceding on behalf of the nations, a chosen race, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. So we have been made new, not just as individuals, each one of us with our own personal relationship with Jesus. We have been made new. We are being built into a spiritual house, a dwelling place for our Savior. So the basis of Peter's message here is quite literally the foundation of the building. That's Jesus Christ himself. That's the cornerstone. Everything we are depends on him. But when we believe in him, we are incorporated into his house. We are being made into living stones ourselves, just like he is the living stone. And the metaphor of stones being built together to form a house is particularly important for us in our day and age in the history of the people of God. Now just think for a moment about physical rocks. If a rock is on its own, it's not of much use. A rock just kind of lays there. Unless that rock is removed from its original location, unless it's shaped and formed and molded, put together with other rocks to form a structure, it's not really going to do anyone any good at all the way it is. It just is. But many people who think of themselves as Christians today believe that they can be an individual rock not having or experiencing any unity with any other stone, not being a part of the spiritual house that Peter is talking about. Our culture, the culture we live in, is individualistic. And so, because the culture that surrounds us is individualistic, we also have a tendency to be individualistic ourselves. So we imagine that we can go, go it alone. People imagine that they can have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ without allowing themselves to be built into his house. Even among people who have been born and raised to know and understand that we are all part of the covenant community, this kind of thinking has a tendency to be far too prevalent. Because often we think of our brothers and sisters' struggles their problems, we think of them as their struggles and their problems and not as ours. And we don't see the necessity oftentimes of keeping ourselves involved in the lives of others. We forget too often that our calling, whether we're young or old, whether we're children or whether we're seniors, is a calling to live out and live as communion saints. Brothers and sisters, this kind of individualistic thinking is a serious error for two reasons. First of all, it puts you in a very dangerous place. Imagining that you can be a true, fruitful, and faithful Christian apart from the spiritual household of God, the church, means that you're putting yourself in harm's way and you're doing it deliberately. To use that imagery of the stone building, The stones of the building support each other and they protect each other. The whole 
forms something much greater than its parts. In our spiritual house, we find safety. We find protection. We aren't as vulnerable when we're in that spiritual house, when we're part of that spiritual house. We aren't as vulnerable to attacks from the outside. And at the same time, for a living stone to remain outside of the building, outside of the spiritual house, is for that stone not to fulfill the purpose for which it was made. And we were made to be a community. We were made to reflect the internal community of the triune God. As living stones, we have an important role to play in relationship with the other stones. The building, to put it simply, the building needs us. We take a stone out of the wall, out of a stone wall, and that wall will become unstable. And the same thing is true for us as God's people. In an individualistic world where people think that they can go it alone as Christians, when they think that they can have a personal relationship with Jesus and nothing more, this is an important warning and encouragement. To step outside of the stones and the building metaphor for a moment, let me say it clearly and plainly. If you say that you're a Christian, you need to be a part of the church. You cannot disdain the church. You cannot look down upon it. You cannot imagine that you don't need the church, that you're somehow above having to be a part of the church. One of the early church fathers, Cyprian of Carthage, said this, and I quote, he said, You cannot have God for your father unless you have the church for your mother. And the reformers said exactly the same thing. Martin Luther wrote the following. He said, Outside the Christian church, that is, where the gospel is not, there is no forgiveness and hence no holiness. The church is the mother that begets and bears every Christian through the word of God. And in one of his sermons on the Galatians, John Calvin said this, I shall start then with the church, into whose bosom God is pleased to gather his children, not only that they may be nourished by her help and ministry, so long as they are infants and children, but also that they may be guided by her motherly care until they mature and at last reach to the goal of faith. For what God has joined together, it is not lawful to put asunder, so that for those to whom he is father, the church may also be mother. So the church is not optional in the Christian life. It's central. Being church, living as the united people of God, is not easy. It's challenging. But then again, brothers and sisters, you know, so is being part of an earthly family. There is a saying that goes like this. You can choose your friends, but you cannot choose your family. And the same thing goes for the church. We may be gathered together with, we may be united to people who we wouldn't choose, first of all, to be our best buddies. We may be united in the church with difficult people. We may be united with people who don't share our interests or our personal passions or our personal concerns or our own pet ideas. 
and hobby horses. Relationships are messy and difficult things. And that's true for the church especially because we are not a self-selected group of individuals who chose to gather together because we share a common interest. We are, as we heard this morning, the elect people of God. We're called by God from our old household to form a new household. So if you think you can be a good, faithful Christian without being a part of the church, the spiritual household of God, think again. It is in the local congregation where the reality is lived out. And that's where it must be lived out. And that is a tangible, visible, physical thing. It's a gathering of people. It's a a community, a communion. A gathering of people from different walks of life, from different backgrounds, with different interests and different personalities. People of all ages united together by God and not by man. In the early church, Hermas wrote about his vision of Christians being built into God's house. What Hermas said was that there are rough stones that need smoothing. He said there are other stones that need polishing. He said there are some that need a chipping away of characteristics that would prevent them from being used in the building. He said that the stones in the building all look different. They may come from different sources and different places. They may be different kinds of stones, but they all need to fit together in order to make a building. But then Hermas said there are other types of stones. And these are stones that refuse to undergo the process of chipping and polishing and shaping. And so they have to be rejected by the builder and they have to be thrown aside. Finally, there's one more type of stone. And Hermit said that these were white, round stones. And here's what he had to say about these particular white, round stones. He said, these are those who have faith indeed, but they also have the riches of the world. When tribulation comes, on account of their riches and on account of their busyness, they deny the Lord. But when the riches that now seduce them have been circumscribed, that is, taken away from them, then they will be of use to God. For as a round stone cannot become square unless portions of it are are cut off and cast away, so also those who are rich in this world cannot be useful to the Lord unless their riches be cut down. Brothers and sisters, we need to remember who we are. Peter begins this chapter with an imperative, with a command. He says, put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. And that's the negative. Those are the things that we are supposed to stop doing. But then there's also a positive side. There's something that we should be doing. And that is that we should long for pure spiritual milk that by it we may grow into salvation. We've been set apart. We've been separated from our former way of life. We've been separated from all those sins which are associated with that former way of life. And they must be left behind. Notice there, in 
that verse that Peter does not address what we might think of as being serious sins. When we think of murder and theft and adultery as being the most serious sins, he speaks of sins of attitude. He's speaking about what you might call seed sins. And these are sins that can cause tremendous damage in the community of God's people. And these are sins that have a huge destructive power. But then from that imperative, from that command, he moves on to the indicative, and that is the basis for that command. It's the reason that we have for obeying that command. We have come to him. We've come to the Lord Jesus Christ. We come to the living stone rejected by men, but chosen and precious in the sight of God. And we are being formed into a spiritual house. We're all different. A master stonemason who's God himself may be chipping away at the rough edges of some of us. He may be smoothing out some of the rougher parts that some of us have. He may be polishing us. Whatever the case is, all of us, each one of us, is a work in progress. Not one of us has arrived. And that process takes time. To put it in theological terms, the process of sanctification, of being made holy, of growing in holiness, is a lifelong process. But we are all in this together, brothers and sisters, and we need to understand our place within the community, within the spiritual house, within the household of faith. We are different from the world. We are unique as a people. We are distinct as a people. That's what God has made us. So my question for this afternoon is this. Do we show this to the world? And I know this is the same point that I made this morning, but it bears repeating because this is something that all of us need to work on. So my questions this afternoon are these. Are we in the Emmanuel Canadian Reformed Church in Edmonton living as a spiritual household? Do all of us understand that the church isn't just a place where we go, but the church is who we are? That the church isn't just one more thing in our lives, but that the church actually defines us. It makes us who we are. Are we really a spiritual house being built of living stones that are being worked on by God? Or are we like a bunch of rocks that are scattered over the countryside? Are we living together as the reconstituted, the rebuilt people of God? as an outpost of God's kingdom? Or are we consumers? Are we people who come to church for two hours or one hour, one Sunday or every other Sunday or whenever we can make it? Is our identity being formed by our membership in the body of Christ? Or is it just one of many aspects that make up the person who we are? One commentator on this passage wrote this. He said, we are called to be loving toward each other, to show the world a new kind of community, a new kind of society that is truly the life of the new creation. But how are we part 
of a new and living and loving community if we only meet for only two hours a week and have little personal interaction anywhere else? This is an area where we need to examine ourselves, brothers and sisters, because it's imperative for the health of the body of Christ. It's imperative for the strength of the walls of this building. It's imperative for each one of us. We need work. We can't be those round white stones that Hermas spoke about, those stones that cannot be useful to the Lord unless our riches, whatever those riches may be, and they may be different for each one of us, unless those riches are cut off. We may be rough. We may need some serious chipping and smoothing and polishing, but we are all part of the building, and we need to live as part of the building. So if there's something getting in the way of that, whether it's an attitude or priorities or a mindset that we have, we need to get rid of it. We cannot be content with not growing in this area. We cannot be satisfied with things the way they are, even if we think they're pretty good. We have the solid, perfect cornerstone in Jesus Christ, and we need to be built on his foundation together. That is a command, and it's also a very great privilege. All too often, we tend to see church activity and and the things we must do in the church as a duty instead of as a blessing. All too often, we look at our brothers and sisters as a burden instead of as a blessing. We want to get as much out of church as we possibly can, but we don't want to give her our all. We may want to get our weekly dose of pure spiritual milk, Peter writes, but then once we get it, we don't want to live off of it. Or instead of focusing on how we can apply that spiritual milk that we've received on Sundays, we spend our time and energy with our glass of milk, looking at it, holding it up to the light, seeing the little impurities that are in it, judging it, talking about it, telling other people the spiritual milk had a flaw in it this week. And then we put it aside. But brothers and sisters, that's not how it should be. Nothing less than total and wholehearted commitment, nothing less than complete dedication to the building that we are a part of is what the builder of the house demands. We are stones. Stone out in the bush, stone up in the mountain, is a dead thing. It has no life in itself. That stone doesn't do anyone any good. There is no society in the world for the protection of stones. And that's what we are by nature. We are dead, useless things. But we have been made into living stones by the living stone, by the stone that the builders rejected, but the stone who was chosen and precious in the sight of the Lord. That is what the builder has made of us. We need to understand and appreciate and rejoice in what we are, in who we are, in what he has made of us. And we need to live that out. And only in doing that will we be what we were meant to be, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. And then 
we will truly be people who proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Brothers and sisters, here is the amazing thing. Once we were not a people, but now we are God's people. Once we had not received mercy, but now we have received mercy. Therefore, Peter says, we need to abstain from the passions of the flesh that wage war against our souls. What are those passions? Those passions include our passion for independence. They include our passion for self-sufficiency. They include our passion for selfishness. These are passions that keep us from truly being built into the spiritual household of God, a stronghold of God, a solidly built spiritual house built on the foundation of Christ. If we truly belong to him, we will want to do anything and everything that we possibly can to dedicate ourselves to him and to his service in proclaiming his excellencies. Amen.